today on episode number 171 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Anton Tolman shares about his book, Why Students Resist Learning, a practical model for understanding and helping students. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me for today's episode is Anton Tolman. He's a professor of behavioral science at Utah Valley University. He received his degree from the University of Oregon in clinical psychology and worked in clinical practice for many years before joining the academy. He's the past director of the Faculty Center for Teaching Excellence at UVU, where he led the university's faculty development program for almost seven years. He currently serves as faculty coach for the Office of Teaching and Learning, in addition to his other duties. His current research is focused primarily on student and faculty resistance, promoting metacognition, and power dynamics in the classroom. Anton, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Ever since we started corresponding, I've been very excited to talk with you about student resistance. This is something that has come up on many episodes of 160 some odd episodes that we've done. But as I mentioned to you, we've never really gone in as much depth, as much comprehensive depth as what you have done in this wonderful book. And I wonder before I start talking to you about resistance and some of the ways that you've created a model for us looking at it, before I start asking you questions about resistance and your model for student resistance. I wonder if you could share a little bit just about the origins of why you decided to write a book on resistance. Well, I think one of the main reasons is the reason you just gave, which is that this is a part of teaching. It is a part of life when you're working with students. I think everybody who has taught has run into student resistance in one form or another. And yet I think that we often don't approach it very effectively. And so as a faculty developer, so I, I led our faculty development center, it was called the Faculty Center for seven years, almost. And this was just kind of a recurrent theme I saw over and over again is that faculty would encounter student resistance and just get very frustrated with it. I think Mary Ellen Weimer said it well in her book, she said, sometimes faculty will interpret that as almost like a personal affront, mm -hmm. like the students are kind of rejecting them or really being antisocial towards them. And so I think it's, it's, it's a topic that really is very important. And I had been working for years on the issue of metacognition. And so I'm really a believer in the importance and the power of, of promoting student metacognition. I've developed instruments to do that and so on. And so that was my area of research. I was working on that. The more I did, the more I realized that this tied back into issues of resistance. And that launched me into thinking about what really is are the causes of student resistance? And I've got little models I drew in sketchbooks <laughs> <laughs> for several years, uh, changing the model around as I worked on that. But one other thing I'd mention is that this book is 
notable because it was co-authored with seven undergraduate students at the University uh, Utah Valley University and a graduate student at uh, in California at CSU San Bernardino. So the book, not only are we talking about student resistance, kind of third per- third person, but the students were part of this discussion. And we have their stories in the book. We have their voices, even their own kind of growing awareness of their own <laughs> resistance mm-hmm. as they went through this research process and writing the book. So uh, they didn't just do like background work for us. They actually wrote a lot of the material in the book. And then, of course, we edited it and so on. And I think that's unique. Yeah. It definitely is. What a, what a strength that that offers to have that kind of perspective. It would be lost without their voices being right there. I just congratulate you on the, the work. I could imagine that it took to coordinate all these different authors and all these different voices and perhaps some people who hadn't written in this kind of a fashion before, because I'm sure it took some coaching and guidance as well. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of them graduated and the book wasn't done yet. So then I'm emailing and they're sending me stuff back. So it, it was an interesting process. One of the other things that you, you talked about, sometimes it does feel personal. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's healthy just to own that, you know, instead of trying to convince ourselves that we're so foolish for thinking that I think the first step, at least for me, <laughs> has been to own it. For me, it came up early on in my learning more about plagiarism. I've joked on those episodes before that it felt like they were cheating on me, you know, and and so that that can certainly be part of the resistance. But one of the disappointing things for me is if people start to learn more about active learning and try to put some of it into practice early in their own experience, they can think that they're doing something wrong because they're getting that resistance when in fact they're doing everything right and that it can be such a healthy, natural part of really deep learning. So I always get, I always hope that I, I try to make sure that I I give people cautions about that it's not going to be smooth sailing and that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, I I agree with you. And it's it's a very human reaction, I think, partly because uh, when we are teaching, you know, we are kind of the expert, especially in higher education. We are, we're the one, the, the content knowledge expert, and we're there to kind of share our passions with the students. And it's very easy to then interpret that resistance as a kind of a personal rejection so I don't think there's anything unusual about that. I think it's just it's just part of being human. Um, but I do think if we don't, you know, as a as a therapist, as a clinical psychologist, we we kind of have a mantra that I teach students about all the time, and that is you can't change what you aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because you think it's just part of the way things are, and this is true for students, but it's also true for faculty. And so being able to recognize resistance when it occurs enables us to then do something to either reduce it or to make the teaching of what we're trying to do come across in a much more effective way. Sometimes faculty, when I first started, when I first started talking about this with faculty, they would interpret me as kind of critiquing them for, uh, you know, getting upset at student resistance. And, and that's not the point. It's, it's, it's just part of being a human being. What is resistance? Resistance. Um, that is a that is an excellent question because if you look in the literature, it's very hard to find a definition. A lot of books talk about student resistance, but they don't. There is no kind of accepted definition. And so, my definition is a little bit cumbersome, but it, we define resistance as a systemic outcome. So it's the result of systemic forces that inhibit or impair a student's ability to learn. 
So anything that occurs that are created by all these different forces that interact with each other, that produce behaviors or attitudes that make it difficult for students to learn is a form of resistance. The, the other thing I, I would say about that is that it's important, I think, for faculty to begin. This is the major paradigm shift at the beginning of the book that I really, really want people to understand. I think we need to start seeing student resistance as a signal, a communication signal, instead of noise. And by that, I mean when we see students resist, most of the time we tend to interpret that as noise. In other words, I'm trying to communicate a signal. I'm trying to teach you about psychology or math or philosophy or computer programming, whatever it is. That's what I'm trying to teach you. And you're kind of obscuring that signal. You're putting out this noise and it's getting in the way and the signal's not getting through. And so that's also frustrating uh, when we're trying to teach. But what if we flip the, what if we flip that around? It's, if it's like a coin, what if we flipped it to the other side? And we said, what if student resistance isn't noise interfering our signal? What if it's a signal coming from them? And when you begin to think of it that way, you begin to ask yourself, what are they telling me? So when they're resisting, they're telling me something. And whatever they're telling me, if I pay attention to that, I may actually be able to engage with them in a dialogue. So the, the idea is that we, especially when we're trying to do active learning, uh, and I think your point about that was very good because faculty, especially when they're new at trying active learning strategies, as they try to implement those when they meet resistance, which they most of the time are going to encounter, it's very easy for them to say this doesn't work. The students, you know, resisted it. They didn't want it or to feel like they're a failure. And then to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to go back to what I was doing. And so if we instead can begin to say, no, wait a minute, this is a communication signal signal from them. And if I just pause and I pay attention to that and I try to understand where it's coming from, then I can actually connect better to my students. And the resistance will go down because we are now engaged in an actually a productive dialogue about how to help them learn. And when we do that, then our ability to communicate the signal that we are trying to send actually is improved. I really think this is such an important thing to stress. I'm, I mean, you say it's really a big takeaway for the book. I was just thinking about we just started our semester and I thought I was already experiencing resistance from my learners already so early in the semester. I was thinking, how are we in the second week? And we had, I had actually experimented a little, a little bit with Kathy Davidson. She has where you create a syllabus or a learning contract together. She's called it different things throughout time. And she's going to be on the show on Thursday the 7th. So <laughs> people listening right. to you probably will have already heard that conversation. But so I, I thought I'd experiment with that. And then they had done just such a horrible job on this assignment. I'd given them go read this blog post and then it's a an ideal week template and they had they had just missed core concepts. And so I took it though from my experience, not as noise, not I mean I thought it might be resistance, but I was kind of like, what? What is going on here? I felt like I had a signal. And then I was able to talk to them about it and have a conversation and, and be I mean I was very candid. I wasn't I wasn't yelling or anything, you know, nothing. I wasn't angry, but I was kind of like, I'm curious. We talked about that you that you didn't think you wanted to take tests to prove your learning, but then we we talked about a different way of of measuring your learning and yet I was really surprised by the results that I saw there and 
what's the funniest thing? It was not resistance. It was that the way I had set up the assignment in our learning management system, I had linked to the article from within the assignment and some of them just didn't see it. You know, you see it on the calendar, but unless you were to click through and actually, oh, there's an article here, I need to click this. And every other reading assignment I had done separately, read this chapter would show up as separate from any assignment related to reading that. And so I thought, well, this wasn't, they weren't trying to do a bad job. They weren't resisting in this case, although I'm very accustomed to that just being a natural part of learning. But if I hadn't had that orientation toward something is happening, Mm -hmm. try try not to take it personally. This probably isn't about you. (laughs) And then get that signal. Try to interpret it. Open up that those lines of communication. It really makes such a difference. Sorry for that long story, but I I just I really think this is so profound and important in our teaching. No, and I think that's a great example. Other common examples are when faculty get upset when students aren't doing the assigned readings mm-hmm. uh, that are very clear on the syllabus that come right out of the textbook. Everybody has to have the textbook. It's required material. And so they, they get frustrated because the students aren't doing that. And often we don't think about, well, why aren't the students doing the reading and kind of trying to figure that out. And if we could figure that out, and it's going to vary somewhat, you know, there's certain common themes to that, but we might be able to change how we set up the readings or teach the class or, or students might have trouble accessing them uh, or being able to pay for them or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And when we're aware of those things, we can then take that into account in our course design. But if we're not aware of it, it's just irritating. And we think the students that we jump to these conclusions that students are lazy or they don't care about the class or whatever. Um, and in fact, that actually creates more obstacles between us and the students when we're trying to teach them. You've defined resilient resilience. <laughs> You've defined resistance for us. You have also talked about the importance of emphasizing the communication signal, that it's not just noise. And I'd like you to share a bit about this visual model, but of course, we're in auditory format, so you'll you'll have to explain it to us, but it will be in the show notes. Tell us about the integrated model of student resistance and all these factors that are at play. Yeah, this so this is the other big thing, of course, the book revolves around is kind of the the IMSER, if you will, or the integrated model of student resistance. This goes back to the definition that resistance is the a systemic outcome. Uh, another common error that that's again, a very human, kind of mistake to make is to believe that a lot of student resistance is because of the students themselves. It's kind of intrinsic to them. It's a trait. So the student, and you hear, you hear in its worst form, if you're listening to faculty in the mail room or at lunch or something like that, sometimes you will hear them, unfortunately, complaining about the students are lazy. Oh, these millennials, you know how they think about education or whatever. And so we tend to kind of attribute it to a trait when in fact, it's not a trait most of the time. It is the result of these systemic forces. And I tried in the, the integrated model to capture what I thought were the, the, S, the essential five elements that actually do contribute to student resistance. So if people were to imagine this in their heads, the, it's, it's like a, a model, like a diagram. And in the center is student resistance. And there's all these arrows pointing to it because all these factors contribute to it. And those factors include what I call environmental forces. We use that name just because it's such a large area. It takes up two chapters in the book. But that includes the larger culture outside of us, 
uh, attitudes towards education, this kind of consumerist mentality, but it also includes the student's own internalization of family culture and things like this. And you see this a lot in, for example, first-generation college students. So often they struggle a lot in school, not only because they don't understand yet how to kind of navigate higher education or how to be successful or, or the kind of strategies to kind of get good grades and so on, but their families don't understand how to support them. And so I, I had a student that was a, he was a wonderful student and he um, went with me. We did research together. We presented at national uh, professional conferences together. His eyes lit up and he said, this is the first time in my life I can imagine actually doing this. But then I realized later he, he confessed to me that he was struggling because his family kept pushing him and saying, well, you know, you're almost done with school. Why are you spending so much time on all these things? And they wanted him to become a professional fisherman mm-hmm. because that was kind of they thought that was his talent and that he could make a lot of money on the professional uh, fishing circuit and so on. And so he was kind of stuck in the middle and his family had no understanding of kind of what he was trying to do. And, you know, they thought they were, uh, you know, really had his best interests in mind and were trying to encourage him. And yet he saw these two worlds now and he was straddling them and he didn't quite know how to maneuver that. So those kind of cultural expectations, even from within families or within the student's own head, also come into that and play a role. And of course, so do things like racism or prejudice or stigma against disabilities and so on. Those are also part of that. The next major piece of that, uh, of these kind of external forces, is just students' prior negative experiences in the classroom. So by the time students come to higher education, and even especially if you're teaching upper division courses, a lot of students have had some really negative events usually occur in the classroom. Some of my students in the book actually tell stories uh, about some of these kind of almost horrific kinds of things that have happened. One student, for example, uh, told a story of, I can't remember what, I think it was a math class, but it may not have been, may have been another class. And the professor asked a question of the whole class and then waited for them to answer. A student gives an answer and the reaction of the professor was, no, that is not the right answer. How come you people can't think this through? What's wrong with you? I told you, I want you all to pay attention to this. I'm only gonna say it one more time. And then he went through it again. And then he asked another question. And the student said, no one dared to actually say a single thing. And so that kind of negative interaction, that, that negative uh, experience in the classroom, then predisposes students to, to say, well, I'm not going to participate. I don't want to participate. I'm, not, I'm going to resist this opportunity to learn or to, to clarify something I'm confused about because I'm just going to be belittled or made fun of and I'm not going to do that. And so they're kind of protecting themselves. And the the trouble is sometimes even if uh, I start off my classes and I try to be warm and engaging, they bring that experience with them into my class. And it may take me quite a while to overcome that uh, because maybe the other professor started out the same way. And so those kind of negative experiences affect that as well. The third element is kind of institutional culture. And institutional culture actually interacts with both negative experiences and um, these kind of cultural factors. And the, the way it does is that schools today are kind of competing for students. And so a lot of the policies that schools have developed in terms of 
tenure and the balance between emphasizing teaching versus scholarship, depending on the school. But even in teaching institutions, there's this tension that often arises around those kinds of issues. Anything that pulls faculty away from or feeling like they can't spend time with students because they have other things they have to be doing, um, especially if that's built into policy, can shape this. Policies about how institutions use student evaluations. And so faculty sometimes, especially the younger faculty, end up trying to cater to students more because they want to get good ratings because the system is kind of skewed towards using ratings to evaluate them for tenure and so on. So these kinds of things and more, including marketing and so on, all are things that also interact with these other uh, experiences that students have and these attitudes and can either make them better or can make them worse. And then on the other side, we have kind of more internal factors for the students. And this includes cognitive development because students as adults, as young adults, their brains are still developing and they are still learning how to think about things and that the world may be different than they think. And so that process is a maturation process, but it's also shaped by the experiences a person has. So the ability to kind of understand that students may interpret something one way, not because we said it wrong or not because they're lazy or resistant, but because the way their brain is working and where they are in their current ability to understand things. So as a simple example, there, there's various theories described in the book, but the one I'll mention is that a lot of people may know is William Perry's positions. So Perry talks about how younger students are often in a dualist position. They tend to see life as either positive or negative. They see things as true or false. And so for them, what is the point of education? What is the purpose of taking a class? And most of them, those who are kind of want to learn or whatever, will think, well, the point of a class is, is to learn facts and is to learn the correct facts. And so the teacher's job is to tell me what those facts are. And my job is to kind of memorize them. And so if you begin to push these students into collaborative learning strategies or you start asking them what they think about something, you will often encounter resistance. And it's because they think you're asking them to do something that has no value. It doesn't make any sense. Why should I talk to and spend half a class period talking to my peers when they're just they're, they don't know the subject any better than I do? So why am I listening to them? I should be listening to you because you're the expert. So just tell me what I need to know. That's one example. And if we're aware that that's where they are, we can, again, kind of design our courses to, uh, as Robert Kloss says, to nudge them, to kind of move them along. And we can have open discussions about, well, what is the purpose of knowledge? What does a professional do? How do they think? And those discussions actually may be very productive and much more helpful towards students actually learning the content than just trying to implement something without that understanding. And then the last area is metacognition. So metacognition is that last bubble up in the upper left in, my, in the model. And this is how I came, as I said, into thinking about resistance. The lack of metacognition contributes to resistance because if students don't know or don't think about how they're actually learning, which a lot of students don't, 
They're not thinking about, well, what strategies am I using to learn this material? Is that strategy working? How well have I mastered the content for this chapter? Which concepts do I know well and which concepts do I not know well? There's relatively few students, especially freshmen and sophomores, where if you talk to them about these things, they actually have thought about that. A lot of students just kind of approach the class, they read the text or they do the assignments, and they think they're, like I said, they're kind of just trying to assimilate it. They're not actually thinking about how they're doing it. Are they taking a surface approach to learning? Are they taking a deep approach to learning? Uh, if we borrow from Carol Dweck, you know, am I adopting a fixed mindset or a growth mindset as I uh, try to face the challenges uh, that the instructor is presenting to me? And so what happens is to the students, their classroom experience is largely shaped by you, the instructor. And they don't take a lot of responsibility because that fits with their understanding of the world. And if they're not self-aware, this is just how things are, right? And so by promoting metacognition, we actually can reduce resistance because they begin to actually think about, you know, I never knew there were these other strategies in how to learn. So I really push SQ4R as an active reading method in all my classes, even my upper division courses. And then there are large numbers of students who've never heard of it. They don't know what it is. They don't know what active reading is. And for the first time, they began to think about how am I actually reading the chapter? And when they began to do that, if you think about this, it, as a student does that, it's very hard to blame the instructor for everything that they're struggling with. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's no longer just you giving them something. They start to own that they are part of this process of their own learning because now they're aware of it. And so by kind of promoting that, we can we actually bring this out of a situation where I'm like just the expert dispensing something into a situation where now we're in a dialogue about how to help you learn. And I think that step is a critical step to reducing resistance as well. One of the things that's wonderful about what you've embedded throughout your work is I could see it still being so easy without the way that you approached it to have this be kind of a condescending thing. Oh, your brain's not developed well enough. You're Mm -hmm. not as highly evolved as I am. Or, oh, you don't think about (laughs) your learning the way that I do. And that comes up so much of the time. But but with bringing the students' voices in, you also bring in a great amount of empathy. And that's why I I just finished reading this book, and it's a book that my husband's been trying to get me to read for a long time. And it is called No Drama Discipline. I don't love the title of it, but I love what the authors had to say and what the gift that they've given me. We have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And I am able to be so much more patient with them now because the authors helped give me eyes to see what it might be like to be three and have someone else be in charge of what I got to eat and what I got to wear and all these things. And, and just some of the ways that I can empathize more. I'm, I'm remarkably, maybe it's a short-term effect <laughs> to see how the staying power of it all. But when I can understand, because cognitive development, that seems very easy, like I could dismiss it if I didn't have the student voices and if I wasn't coming from a perspective of empathy and also kind of a, a sense of delight, how wonderful it is that we get to walk alongside people in their lives that are getting to discover 
that there is a perspective besides a dualist one, that it isn't just true-false. <laughs> there are a lot of grays and there are a lot of different perspectives that people have and just how much that could be a healing presence in our communities that is so desperately needed so we can look at it as a positive that we get to be a part of this magnificent process or we can look at it in a condescending and paternalistic uh, way as we're interacting with our students. No, I, I agree with you totally. I think that that's exactly right. And and the goal of this is to help kind of us connect with the students as much as it is to help the students kind of become aware of themselves. Mm-hmm. That process is, a, is, is an amazing process to watch. If we're doing these kinds of things and we're actually working at tuning our classes to lower resistance, it changes the environment in the classroom and it changes our relationship with them. And it makes teaching, I think, so much more fulfilling than the typical way we have approached it or over the years. And so I hope the model contributes to that ongoing process. This is the point in the show where we each get to recommend something. And I know you've got, I'm, I'm giving you latitude to recommend a few things. So I'm going to get to mine pretty quick. I blogged about this, but I really just wanted to share it again for people that maybe don't read the blog and only listen to the podcast. I bought a new backpack and I'm a huge fan of it. I'll be linking to it in the show notes. It cracks me up because it's called eBags Professional Slim Junior Laptop Backpack. And it's the only product I own that would be described as slim or junior, and it's not for kids, it's actually for adults, but it's not some mammoth thing to carry around. I mean, it's just the, just the right size for carrying a laptop. It has a special pocket for tablets. It has, for when you're traveling, a zip compartment that would make it really easy to put passports or driver's license or tickets in, very easy to access. Uh, there's a couple other things I'll share and then I'll pass it over to you. It has a little pocket on the side that you can unzip for your water bottle to go in a little mesh pocket. But then when you're not using it, you don't even know that it's there because it's just zipped up and kept close with the backpack. And then at the very bottom, there is a zippered pocket. It's probably four inches high by the width uh, and then the width of the backpack. You can unzip it and it's carved out with a hard case so you could put things in there like reading glasses or sunglasses that you wanted to be protected the things that are in your backpack like your laptop or your tablet or notebooks or whatever aren't going to weigh it down because it's a hard case in there that's protecting anything from depressing that part of the backpack and you could also just put your power cords in there I'm notorious for (laughs) I'm better at it now because I have better systems but leaving that little dongle behind that just happens to be $85 (laughs) They want to have to replace it. And if you've got a place that you always remember to put things back in, it can be really helpful that way. So it also can just have the backpack straps tuck away and you don't even know that it's a backpack and it has a strap on the top and one on the side. And so you can just carry it like a regular bag. I'm really, you can tell I'm a huge fan of this. (laughs) It sounds like I will be linking to that in the show notes for anyone who's in the market for a backpack because it's really, I'm a big fan of it. And it was relatively inexpensive considering other backpacks that I was looking at. So I know you've got some recommendations for us as well. What do you have? Uh, sure. Well, let, let me try if I can speed these up. So let, let, me, let me try three. The first is a new website I found the other day called perusal.com. I think it's P-E-R-U-S-A-L-L.com created by Eric Mazur, who kind of was the pioneer of peer instruction in physics. And it, what's fascinating about it, they work with a lot of different publishers, or you can upload your own material to it, your own readings. 
and you can put it up and it becomes almost like a, like a wiki. So students can go on and you can post this and they can do the readings there, but they can also comment on the readings and they can, they can make uh, remarks or like, I don't understand this part. And then you can jump in or other students can jump in and answer it. And it becomes a much more interactive kind of class-based discussion of the readings that you're going to have. So I was really impressed by that. I thought that was kind of neat, a neat opportunity, especially if you're using anything related to open educational resources or OER. Uh, That might be a really cool uh, thing to add to your classroom. Another is a book, and I mentioned this book a lot in my book, and it's uh, Sibley and Ostafichuk. They wrote a book called Getting Started in Team-Based Learning. And so I'm a real fan and proponent of collaborative learning. Team-based learning and, and these approaches are can be enormously useful and powerful, but we often botch how we implement them. And so that book really kind of walks you through, and he does a good job of acknowledging the reality of resistance. He doesn't talk that much about what it is, so that's why I wrote my book, but they do a good job at kind of talking about just accepting that resistance, you're going to have resistance to collaborative learning. So you just accept it, and you just go with it, and you, you design the class uh, to work with it. And when you do that, you can get really good outcomes. So it's a really nice book. I recommend anybody thinking about using TBL or other forms of collaborative learning. And the last thing is my, my current passion. I just got it in the mail the other day. is a new board game. I'm a real board game fanatic. And it's called Lisboa. It's one of the most amazing board games I've ever seen. This is not Monopoly. This is like <laughs> modern designer board games. And it is about uh, Lisbon in 1755. There was a... Uh, probably around a 9.0 earthquake that almost leveled the city and started raging fires. And then there was a tsunami on top of that and it almost totally destroyed the capital of Portugal. And so you are playing part of the noble class trying to rebuild the city and also kind of to gain more fame in doing so. And it's just, it's not a simple game. It's a complex game, but it's just an incredible game. So it's called Lisboa and the designers Vital Lacerda. So it's, if you like board games, especially if you like complicated board games, it is an amazing piece of art. It sounds phenomenal. It's completely outside of my realm of experience, but from the number of past guests that we've had on who talk about some of these more sophisticated kinds of games, I just mm-hmm. barely remember Dungeons and Dragons when I was growing up, but I never got too much into it, but I played that, you know, once or twice, maybe, maybe more than that growing up. But I mean, this is, I know this is a whole nother world than what I would have ever seen before. Oh, the, the types of games that are being created today are just, they're unbelievable. Just amazing games. And this is, this Lisboa is a great example of kind of the epitome of what's possible. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations and for sharing such an important work for our practice as educators. And I'm so excited for people to get their hands on it. We'll be linking to it in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 171. And of course, linking to all of your recommendations as well. <laughs> I'm going to be enjoying the process of filling out these show notes. so <laughs> I can go check them out as I go. I'm already checking out Lisboa and it just looks like a phenomenal game and lots of other things to check out as well. Very good. Well, thank you. I appreciate the chance to talk about it. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks again to Anton for being a guest on today's Teaching in Higher Ed. 
And we had so much we could have talked about. I could have kept going and going, but always try to think about your time. And some of you listen in the car while you're walking around that lake. If you want a little bit more about metacognition, there is a wonderful episode from a little bit back in the catalog, episode number 47 with Todd Sokrisik, which would be a good listen if you want to learn a little bit more about that idea and some practical approaches that you can use. And if you want other follow-up you can do around this community, I'm going to encourage you to subscribe to the weekly email. What happens there is that immediately upon subscribing, you get an, a free e-guide, which is 19 tools that I use both for personal productivity and also for using technology in the classroom to facilitate learning. So you can check that out, but you also then will be subscribed to the weekly emails and all the show notes with Slim Junior Backpack Laptop Backpacks will come into your inbox and Lisboa board games and all that good stuff without you having to remember to go to the show notes to check it out. If you'd like to subscribe, go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And one last thing, if you wanted to make a comment on this episode, you're welcome to go to teachinginhighered.com slash 171. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.